I invite you all to stand for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading this morning is out of the book of Genesis, chapter 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of its joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The word of the Lord. Boys and girls, this morning I want you to listen for a story about a wrestling match. And I want you to see if you can try to figure out who won. And secondly, if you're willing, I want you to see if you can draw a picture of this wrestling match. And if you do, I'd love to see what you come up with. One of the reformers uh, said that this is the most obscure passage in the entire Old Testament. And I'd have to agree, because this is quite simply one of the most mysterious stories you will find in the entire Bible. And for some inexplicable reason, I scheduled myself to preach the week I got back from India. So full disclosure, if there are large chunks of the sermon that make absolutely zero sense whatsoever, you can blame it on the jet lag. But quite frankly, this passage, personally for me, has been a bear. It's, it's been a challenge to wrestle with it. No pun intended. Because this passage does not fit neatly into a nice little 30-minute sermon-sized box on a Sunday morning. I wrestled with it in every airport from here to India, on every flight on little tray tables surrounded by screaming babies, and Mark McAvoy sleeping on my shoulder. (laughs) I'm just teasing, there were no screaming babies. But the most challenging part of this passage is in how God approaches Jacob. It's a bit unsettling to us, is it not? I got on the plane leaving Dallas, and I just was trying to get my mind wrapped around this passage, and I thought, maybe I can just summarize it in a brief sentence. So here's what I wrote. When Jacob is at his lowest point, God picks a fight with him and cripples him for the rest of his life. I know, easy on the encouragement, right? That's as far as I got from Dallas to Dubai. And then when I got on the plane, the next flight... I kept thinking, what is going on in this passage? What is God communicating to us at really the beginning of this biblical story about himself? 
This story is unsettling because we all want to encounter God, but we do not want it to hurt. We all want new life, but we don't want to limp. And right there, that's as far as I got by the time we landed in Kolkata. I was stumped. I was stuck. It was just another reminder that the passage is always bigger than the preacher. And it appeared to me as though God wanted me to wrestle too. But it was seeing this passage play out through our India team that the beauty of this story came to life. It was actually watching them was like seeing this story happen in real time through them, through their experience. Because it was through them that I began to see this passage in a new light and how this story contains some of the deepest, richest, most mysterious theology of our faith that echoes throughout the scriptures. And so this passage gives us an invitation. If you desire intimacy with this God, then wrestling with him is required. Let me just state that again. If you desire intimacy with this God, then wrestling with him is required. There's no avenue towards him where he does not bring you to the end of yourself. There's no closeness with him that doesn't mean more of him and less of you. If you desire intimacy with this God, he's going to bring you to the end of yourself. He's going to make you wrestle with him. But in that is a blessing. We pick up the story with Jacob all alone in the middle of the night. He's standing on the edge of a river at the lowest point in his life. And most likely he expects this will be his last night alive because Esau, his brother, is coming for him with 400 men. He can't go back. He can't go forward. He's trapped with nowhere to go. So the first question this morning really is, how did he get here? How did he get to this place, this riverbed? What's his story? Well, if you know the Jacob story even decently well, then you know that he actually lived a very sad life up to this point. Jacob was a twin, and he got his name because of how he was born. His brother Esau, his twin brother, came out first. But even from the womb, Jacob was a fighter. And so when Esau came out, Jacob was clinging to his heel, not to be outdone. And this is how he got his name. Jacob means something like grappler, deceiver, struggler, wrestler. But growing up, you know, Jacob lived in the shadows of Esau. Why? Because Esau was their father Isaac's favorite son. You can imagine how painful that would be to be the unfavorite son, to be the other son, to be the different one upon which the father put all of his affection. Esau had all the approval. Esau had the same interests, perhaps, as Isaac. Esau had all the trophies, all the accomplishments. And when Isaac would brag about his children, it just so happened to probably be all stories about Esau. And he'd introduce his children and say, this is my son Esau, and this is Esau's brother. That's a painful story. That's a hard way to come up. So, of course, Jacob is going to grow up with the chip on his shoulder. How could he not? 
always having something to prove, always ready for a fight. So when the opportunity comes to try and have the upper hand once and for all over and against his brother Esau, he took it. He deceives his father Isaac into thinking that he is Esau to receive his blessing just before their father Isaac died. And it's really a terrible plan. It's not as though Esau wouldn't have found out. It's not as though Isaac wouldn't have learned what Jacob did. It was all illegitimate. And so you have to wonder, why would Jacob go to all this trouble in the first place? I imagine in some ways it was because he just wanted a moment, perhaps, of hearing his father's approval. Just a moment of feeling what it's like to be the favorite son. Just a moment to stop fighting and just to receive love, even if it was all contrived. Our, des our desires and attempts to fill the void don't often make sense either, do they? But the party was over very quickly because when Esau hears about it, he vows to kill Jacob. So Jacob has no choice. He has to leave. He has to flee. And he leaves the promised land for the next 20 years on the run. But just before he leaves the boundaries of the promised land, there's something that happens to Jacob that's important. There's something that happens that shows us how Jacob has chosen to go through life. He goes to bed one night, and God comes to Jacob in a dream. And God tells him that he will be his God. He will bless him. He will make him great. He will make his offspring innumerable like the sand of the sea. He will make him into a great nation, and through him all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. The, the blessing that Isaac received, now Jacob receives. Those are quite the promises. But how does Jacob respond to this? Well, he wakes up the next morning and he says, Okay, God, if you do all of that, if you do all of that for me and you bring that to pass, then you will be my God. You know you do your best, but at some point you can't ignore it anymore. <laughs> you know, you just you try to push through and then just leave it to David to bring a singing unicorn to church. <laughs> Anyways, so, so how does Jacob respond to these promises of God? He says, God, if you bring all of this to pass, then you will be my God. I'll trust you. But first, you have to prove yourself. So what's he saying? He's saying, if you want to bless me along the way, that's great. I'll take it. But I'm going to go my way. I'm going to go do my thing. And Jacob's heart has now become cold and calloused to the point where he now feels like the only person in the world he can trust is himself. And so even when God comes to him with these amazing promises, no. You've got to prove yourself first. And so he's okay with God if he wants to be his personal assistant and bless him. He is not interested in a God that is, wants to be his Lord and his master. What we see from Jacob in this moment is that Jacob has chosen the route of self-sufficiency. He's going to do it all on his own. And it's something I think we all struggle with, if we're, if we're honest. We all struggle with bringing God into our life as our Lord 
and master? How have you chosen the route of self-sufficiency? Do you bring that same skepticism towards God? As long as he gives himself or gives you blessing or gives you more of himself, then maybe you'll give him more. He feels dangerous. You want to go your own route. Maybe you're just like Jacob. You're someone that takes confidence in your own strength and your own abilities. You think you can handle whatever life throws your way. You're capable, resilient. There's no problem that you think you can't solve. And so you think, you know what, God, sure. How about you take care of eternity and I'll take care of everything else here. Now, you might not exactly put it in those terms and be that blunt about it. So how would you know that that's you? Well, quite simply, when was the last time you prayed? When was the last time you asked God for genuine help? Or maybe you're someone whose self-sufficiency is more covert. Maybe it lies beneath the surface because it's covered by Christian actions and behaviors. So yes, you pray, but what are the content of those prayers? It's just blessing. God bless my family. God bless my job. God bless my finances. God bless my health. God bless my children. Isn't that coming to God in the same way that we see Jacob? Sure, God, if you want to be involved in my life, that's great. Start by blessing what's most important to me. And don't get me wrong, it's perfectly fine to ask God for his blessing, but not only. Because there's a big difference between saying, God, bless my marriage, and praying, God, make me a better husband. God, make me a better wife. God, bless my finances. Or, God, what do you want me to do with my finances? What do you want? What do you desire? And we know that we've gone the route of Jacob and chosen the route of self-sufficiency when we carry no sense of dependence upon God and all that we have between us and him is a request for blessing. There's no trusting in him, asking for his help, for his guiding, for his leading. It's just an asking for blessing and you just want to go your own way that you choose. So, how does God love someone that feels they're strong and self-sufficient? Well, if he's gracious to them, then he's going to put them in a situation where all of that doesn't work anymore. He's going to bring them to the end of themselves, And that's exactly what he does to Jacob. After 20 years of being deceived by his father-in-law Laban and being railroaded by him, God tells Jacob to return to the promised land so that God could bring Jacob to that very place where he'd recognize that all of his sense of self-sufficiency is just a lie. He brought Jacob to the side of this river. And so I think if you ask Jacob in that moment a question, if you said, Jacob, how's life turned out for you? I think you'd find a broken man. His life's a mess. He's trapped. He can't go back the way he came because of Laban. He can't go forward because of Esau and the 400 men he brought with him. His family is in chaos. His personal life is a mess. He has nowhere that he can go. And he's afraid that he's going to be killed the next day. Jacob, the self-sufficient one, is now brought to a place where all of his attempts at control, at gaining the upper hand, all of his fighting and struggle, all of his self-sufficiency just brought him to a place where his life is a complete mess. And I think he'd say the one thing that is the hardest thing for those that think they're self-sufficient to say, which is this, I'm helpless. 
I'm utterly helpless. And that's exactly where God wanted him. That's why God orchestrated this whole situation so that he could meet him by this river. And when God shows up, what's he do? He picks a fight. He wrestles with Jacob all night long. And maybe you read that and you're like, you know what? Of course. That's what God does. He kicks us when we're down. You're one that reads that and you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop because you think that God's greatest desire is to take every opportunity to humble you and bring you low. But that's not true. And that's not what's happening here in this story. Because what if God wrestling Jacob is actually a sign of his love and his grace? What if it's a sign of his tenderness and compassion? Because what is God really doing when he shows up? This wrestling is what? It's the almighty, omnipotent, all-powerful God choosing to be weak before he is strong. He comes in the form of weakness to meet Jacob in his weakness. Why? It's for the same reason I watched Eric Camp arm wrestle all the little boys in the Rajah Children's Home. Eric's arm weighs more than their entire body. But for some inexplicable reason, Eric went 0 for 100 in arm wrestling matches in India. Why? Because sometimes love is best expressed in the form of weakness. And God humbles himself before Jacob. He comes in the form of weakness. And quite frankly, he humiliates himself. Because he basically says in verse 25 to Jacob, you beat me. God throws the fight. So God coming to Jacob in weakness in my opinion, is at the heart of some of the deepest theology of our faith because it displays the character and disposition of God towards his people. The fact that this all-powerful, almighty, omnipotent God would take the form of weakness and allow his children to wrestle with him is one of the most profound mysteries of the Godhead. But it's in coming to Jacob and wrestling with him that God is communicating something to him and saying, Jacob, you have tried to wrestle with everything and everybody your entire life. Always trying to have the upper hand. The problem is you've wrestled the wrong thing. I'm the one that wrote your story. I write your pleasure. I write your pain. I'm the one that wrote it. You've wrestled with the wrong thing. Wrestle with me. Come and finally wrestle with me. And in that, God in his weakness takes all of Jacob's blows. He allows Jacob to pour out all of his vexation, all of his frustration and desperation of soul. Why? So that he could literally bring Jacob to the end of himself, and he exhausts him. He brings Jacob to the end of all of his self-sufficiency, all of his solutions, all of his answers and expectations for how life should have gone, And then, that's when he experiences what? God's power. But notice how Jacob experiences God's power. 
He experiences God's power as pain. God simply touches his hip and cripples him for the rest of his life. So here we are with this story where God comes in the form of weakness. And then we see his power in this wrestling match. But why? What for? What's the goal of God in all of this? Jacob sees both the weakness and power of God, and I think that puts him to a recognition. He comes to this place where he's confronted with the reality of this God of extraordinary power that would still spare him and invite him into a relationship with him. Who is this God that did not utterly crush me and let me wrestle with him? Who is this God that stands before me? And out of that, something fundamental changes within Jacob. But you've got to listen for it. It's in verse 26. God says, Jacob, let me go. But Jacob holds on and he says, no, I will not let you go until you bless me. Did you hear what's changed? God brings Jacob to the end of himself so that all of his wrestling would be transformed into clinging. No longer is Jacob trying to cling to the approval and blessing of his father. He's not trying to cling to the blessing and approval of Esau or his father-in-law Laban. Now he's clinging to God and saying, I won't go any further without you. I need your blessing. I will not go any further unless you go with me. I need you. It's in this wrestling that Jacob finally yields and all of that wrestling turns into him clinging and resting upon God. And that's when God says, that's what I've been waiting to hear, Jacob. Now you're ready for a new name. Now you're ready for a new identity. And now you're ready for my blessing. And we have no idea what that blessing was. Only Jacob knows what God said to him in that moment. And Jacob emerges from this night with a new name, a new identity, and a new limp. But what was first experienced as, as pain, no doubt, became precious. Because that limp would remind him for the rest of his life that this encounter with God was not just some ethereal dream, but it was real in flesh and in blood. That limp would remind him every day that he encountered God. And out of that, he could come face to face with Esau and face life in a different manner. Why? Because he came face to face with God. And it's in this story we find a profound mystery that God communicates to us, that he invites us to wrestle with him so that he can wrestle something out of us. He wants to bring you to the end of your self-sufficiency, to your lack of need of him, to remove any illusion of control that you might have so that he can bring you to a place where you cling to him and experience a new blessing, a new identity that changes you forever. And what Jacob does physically in this story, we're all called to do spiritually. And this is how it looked for Jacob. So how does that look for us? What does this wrestling, this experiencing God's power and this blessing look like for us? Because I doubt God's going to show up tonight in your backyard and wrestle with you. You've actually seen this process play out over the last two weeks with our India team and their updates. Because to go to India is to be invited into a wrestling match with God. 
to watch the team, you know, as they arrive and they start to experience all of this brokenness, all of this spiritual darkness that's darker than they thought, the despair that's worse than they thought, the suffering that's deeper than they thought, the poverty that's more difficult than they thought. They see all of these problems and issues on a monumental scale, and they start to have to wrestle with God. And that's when you start to see this process play out, is to go and see those problems, because your, your gospel is only as big as your biggest problem. And when you go and you see problems that are beyond your capacity to comprehend, it puts you in a place where it makes you wrestle with the reality of the gospel. It makes you wrestle with the reality of how God works, the reality of sin and evil. It makes them wrestle with what it is that we bring to the table when we go to India. And as we were there at the beginning of the trip, I started to record all of the moments that team members started to vocalize they're wrestling. And this is some of the things they said. Why does God allow this to happen? Doesn't he care about these kids? I thought I'd feel sad, but all I feel is anger, and I don't know why. I want to jump out of my skin. This is not okay. Why do we even come here when the results are so hard to come by? Why don't we go somewhere else? And yet soon after that, all of that wrestling turned into pain. Because it was watching Randy Letourneau's heart break as he said goodbye to the Raja kids. It was watching Pam Letourneau and seeing the devastation on her face as she had to let go of a two-year-old girl and leave her all alone inside the monster that is the Kaligat. It was listening to David be undone as he prayed for a woman in the rock quarry that just wept and wept and wept as he prayed for her. But that pain was actually proof that they encountered God. Why? Because he didn't just break their hip, he broke their hearts. Now they start to mourn. Now they started to weep because the real tragedy is for them to go through all of that and feel nothing. And you just say, oh, isn't that sad? And then turn home. No, God touches their heart and he breaks it because now they love what he loves. They start to hate what he hates. They start to grieve over what grieves the heart of God. And it's in that that they only had one choice, and that was to cling to God because they saw something. It's not what Rockwell Press brings to the table. It's not us bringing our solutions. We don't have the power, and we don't have the answers. He brought them to a place where they felt this love for these people, these women, these churches, and they realize that it's only God in his goodness and mercy that can do anything for them. And it changed their prayers where they're begging God to intervene on behalf of these people. And they started to walk with a limp. And it's in Chloe's update that she expressed her own experience of this process. She described how God brought her to a place where her self-sufficiency was undone and all of her answers didn't work anymore. Listen to what she wrote. Even in my hardest situations of crisis back home, I could move from being unsettled to ease with little to no effort. I carried an endless amount of silver linings in my pocket, and I was never afraid to pull one out. Throughout this trip, the Lord revealed the flaws in my system of avoiding reality, the system that would keep me busy with endless plans and projects, always looking for something new. And all the while, I would ignore the faint whispers from God saying, be still, 
for I am here. I realized that I was clinging to what was lighthearted because I was afraid of the heaviness in the world. I realized how I've been ignorantly putting cheap band-aids of optimism over deep wounds of sorrow and fear. It was in India that all of that didn't work anymore. It was in India that God ripped off the band-aids. My heart was stripped down to nothing but flesh and sorrow for the people in poverty. No longer could I look away. No longer could I pretend it didn't exist. Rolling up the window, turning up the music, and speeding by to avoid eye contact with the poor and the powerless was no longer an option. Yet as I walked through the churches of the deep forest, I stared into the eyes of these people who looked back at me and said, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. It was a humbling experience to witness the poorest of the poor praise the Lord for all the goodness that he has done. Hot tears burn my cheeks almost every night as I realize that these men, women, and children have only scratched the surface of the gospel, yet they have faith that abounds through the tribulation. I want that faith. I want that strength. And shame on me for doubting the God of comfort. My heart was raw and hurting. I feel anger towards the injustice. I feel sadness for the lost. But I feel blessed by the faith of the poor. It was out of this wrestling that each of the team members received the blessing. That God met each of them in their own way. For Chloe, it was seeing the God of comfort and the faith of the poor. For another, it was seeing the walls of self-protection come crumbling down. And for another, it was an opportunity to finally see God and feel safe when they left all of the comforts of the familiar. And the truth is, they could have told you all of that in their head before they left. But it was only when they went and they wrestled that all of that blessing sunk down into their heart and it became real. And it's in this Jacob story that we see God invite us to wrestle with him so that we might experience a real blessing. Because in wrestling, it exposes, God exposes who we are and he reveals to us who he is. This story shows us that if you want intimacy with this God, then wrestling is a requirement. It was a requirement for Jacob. It was a requirement for this India team. It was a requirement for me. It's a requirement for you. And it was a requirement for God himself. Because when Jesus came, he spent all night wrestling with God in the Garden of Gethsemane, begging God to avoid the cross if it was at all possible to go another way. But he did not go his own way, and instead, he went the way of the cross, knowing full well that the father wasn't just going to dislocate his hip. He was going to deliver a death blow. He chose weakness before power and strength. Why? So that you might be blessed beyond measure. Blessed in a way that Jacob never knew. But God does not want that to be some ethereal idea like a dream, but he wants it to be as real to you as a limp in your leg. Which means that if this story is true, it's found in all of those places in life where things aren't going well. All of those places where life didn't turn out the way you expected, you're exhausted, you're tired, you're worn out, and it seems everything you've tried hasn't worked. What a great place to be. Because God perhaps is inviting you into a wrestling match. And through that you might see his face. And in that you will be blessed beyond measure. And in the end, C.S. Lewis still said it best. Safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. 
He's not a tame lion, but he's good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would meet each of us right where we are this morning. We come into a season where it can be so hard for so many people. All the hurt and heartache that family, all the baggage that comes with family, the hurt, the broken relationships that the holidays can remind us of, that we try to ignore perhaps the rest of the year, all come to the surface. We see others doing well whenever we are struggling. We come to the end of another year, and it was a year of disappointment. And we want this new year to be different. It's in all these things that we ask you to meet us in those places. Would you pick a fight with us? Would you remind us that we are not self-sufficient and that any illusions of control are simply ridiculous and that instead we might know the blessing of clinging to you, knowing that you are the God that blesses. You are the God that gives us a new identity, a new name, a new hope, and a new future. We thank you that because of Jesus Christ, we know this to be true. We thank you that he chose the path of weakness so that we might be blessed beyond measure. Would you meet us at this table? It's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we all say, Amen. Amen.